Hey everybody, this is Ernie Johnson, and welcome to EJ's Game Plan. It's your guide to working in sports media. Today we'll be talking to Tom Rinaldi, an ESPN and ABC reporter. Tom Rinaldi here with ESPN. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of Friday afternoon here uh, with me. Um, I'm here at the invitation of Ernie Johnson, and for anyone who got on before uh, 2 o'clock, I apologize. You sort of saw me stumbling around, which is not uncommon in my house here, but is uncommon on social media because I'm not on any platforms of social media at all. That's another story for another day. Uh, but I appreciate everyone who's decided to, to hop on here. Um, I've been a reporter with ESPN since 2002, and I cover uh, a variety of different things, golf and tennis, college football, and I do feature stories um, across all sport. I do about 10 games a year, sideline in the NBA. Um, so been with ESPN 18 years. No time in my career has been like this. And I think that's the case for everybody connected to sport. So at Ernie's suggestion, he asked me to hop on. I'm happy to do that. And then to flip up from the bottom and take a look at some of the questions which come up. And with my glasses, guys, that's what I'm going to do. Please fire away with anything you want. Uh, the, one of the first questions that came up was regarding the Masters and how much I miss it. Now, something that I did uh, is I called all the people last week, if not all of them, but many that I would have seen because of how much I miss them. I've been going to the Masters for almost, well, basically for 20 years now and have been part of ESPN's broadcast team on Thursday and Friday. Had the chance to sit down with the winner um, and do the Sunday conversation, typically on Sunday nights uh, last year, uh, memorably with Tiger, of course. And I did miss it a lot. Each one of the things I missed the most is last year uh, was... I'm going to guess here, maybe the 17th year in a row that I shared the same house with the same quintet of people. Um, there are not too many hotels and motels in Augusta, Georgia, so many of the folks who come for the Masters rent houses, and we've done so year after year. ESPN gets many, many houses for its personnel to help broadcast the event. The house that I'm fortunate enough to be a part of, or have been until this year, Scott Van Pelt, Andy North, his wife, Susan, who is his living redemption, and our boss, Mike McQuaid. And I'm telling you, if you just fix the camera, one of those Nest cameras, and you could hear clear audio, um, there would be perhaps a show in and of itself each night. As someone proclaims that they're going to go to bed at 1030, and then suddenly it's quarter to one, nobody's moved because everybody just keeps talking. So I really did miss the Masters, number one. Could we see it happen twice in five months? I think yes. Um, I believe that golf will be the first sport that will come back. I, I don't think that's a big leap considering distance is baked into the sport. It's not enclosed in an arena. It takes advantage of vast spaces across which to play it. I think it can be played without galleries, although sponsors are a huge, huge part of golf, a, a really an important part of its ecosystem. My, really, it's hard in some respects. So what shape it takes, we'll see. But I, I'm an optimist at heart, and I really do believe we will see the Masters happen in November. 
A ton can change between now and then, of course. I'm going to give that disclaimer for anything projecting forward and speculating about the future. But I do think it will happen. And if so, I think they'll turn the golf course around with the way they oversee the incredible amount of resources and care and just the way they run that event, which is incredible and state-of-the-art. And it would be ready to go again in April of 21. Let me check out some other questions here, guys. Uh, did you watch any of the ma- reruns of the Masters, and what are your thoughts? C- can I tell you, I I uh, I did, and I called Jim Nance while '97 was running. Again, somebody who I would have seen, and who's just a terrific, terrific man, and uh, somebody I missed seeing. And he shocked me by saying he was watching it, and he had never seen it before. He'd never gone back and watched Tiger winning in 97, which I thought was absolutely incredible. Listen, I get that he's Jim Nance. He's authored and called and been a part of broadcasting iconic moments across all sport. I get that. But this is Tiger 97, and he'd never gone back 23 years later was the first time he watched the Sunday call again, which I thought was incredible. Um, obviously what happened last year there was just one of the most unforgettable things I think I'll ever see in sport. And when Tiger left the green and made that walk with the entire golf course chanting his name and people forming a human tunnel for him to walk down, that is something I don't think I'll ever forget as long as I live. What is the most memorable short piece you've done Um, what are the fundamentals of being a broadcaster? Uh, So let's start with, uh, here's a couple of fundamentals in in telling stories. Uh, One is I think each of us possesses fundamentally and innately when we are born. But as we begin to move through life, it's interesting we need to fight to maintain this magical quality that we all have when we enter the world. And you might think to yourself, well, what is it? It's curiosity. And the reason I think we need to fight to maintain curiosity as we grow older is twofold. Number one, because our own experience begins to fascinate us as it should, but it begins to allow for something else to enter the picture. Something which is, in a way, in direct opposition to curiosity. And that's cynicism. We begin to believe we've already seen it all. We've already heard it all. We already know everything that could or would or has happened. And in the knowing, our interest dies on the vine. We become hardened and jaded to whatever might be coming down the pike, whatever somebody's story really is. And thus we get shut off to curiosity. If we can keep the spark of curiosity alive, that leads us towards stories. Because each of us in our own lives has a story to tell. And it's been such an honor and a privilege to have the chance with um, within the sporting venue and, you know, with the country as a canvas to tell stories. And I'd like to think 
I continue to, to fight the good fight to keep that curiosity open. That's one fundamental. Two is something else which probably sounds obvious, and that's to be a listener. And as people begin to share with you in an interview, and there are different kinds of interviews, not every interview is it should follow a feature path. Not every interview should have a feature story as its goal. Understand that. But if you're looking to tell a story, most times, that's what a subject is looking to give you, a story. And by listening, that opens the door for that subject to provide that story to you. And the simplest questions often are the most effective. And that's why to me, uh, perhaps the best question in any interview, and the question that took me way too long to learn to ask, is three words long. What happened next? Not to guess, not to presume, not to cut off what happened next, which allows the subject to continue to tell you a story. I think those are a couple of fundamentals that have served me as I've tried to, to become a better storyteller, a better featurist, and become better at sharing and conveying what some people have shared with me in some of the stories I've told. Wow. I, well, this is, this is, let me jump in right here on, on the last dance. Um, how excited are you to, for the last dance? I cannot overstate it. And I don't care if I come across as a company guy or a shill or anything else. If you grew up in my time and you're of my generation, Michael Jordan, if you love sport and you love basketball, Michael Jordan is it. I mean, he's it. And as Michael Wilbon said in one of the clips, which has been released to The Last Dance, uh, you know, there's generationally sort of the three greatest icons, I think that you can say, uh, and there's many, all right? But Ruth, Ali, Jordan, that's a pretty tight list. And it's Jordan for me, considering my generation. And I've had the chance to, to meet Michael Jordan. I've had the chance to interview Michael Jordan. I was in the arena in Utah when he hit the shot over Russell in game six. Uh, I cannot wait to see it. Also, I'm immensely proud um, of the fact that I know uh, a couple of, uh, I know the, the guys that shot it. Uh, who worked for 7th Movement, not worked for, they formed 7th Movement, one of the great crews in the country. And they shot all the interviews with Jason, the director. And so I, I've known just a little bit about the project. They didn't give away any trade secrets, certainly, but a little bit about the project as it was happening. So I've had an even longer ramp to get excited about it. I, I cannot wait for it. Can you explain the storytelling process for Lewis Mulkey? Uh, thanks so much for that question. I really appreciate it. Uh, Louis Mulkey was a fire captain in South Carolina, in Charleston, and was also initially a youth coach and then a high school coach who worked with uh, a special group of young players in basketball in Somerville. Uh, South Carolina, dominant football town, which had never won a basketball title. Lewis Mulkey's story is a story about this fire captain who loved the boys on this team, 
loved his players. And when they came just short of winning a state title, trying to become the first in school history to win the state title in basketball, he told them that it was okay because they would win it when they were seniors. And in between the junior and senior season for these boys, Mulkey responded to a fire at a furniture factory. And this fire is legendary in its tragic proportion in Charleston. And Mulkey became part of what's known as the Charleston Nine, nine firefighters who lost their lives in that terrible, terrible fire. The team, as seniors, devoted their season to Mulkey and to trying to win the state title for the first time in school history in his honor. Uh, we had the chance to, to tell that story because of what happened in the state title game. I don't want to give too much away. Um, if you have the opportunity to to ever read about Lewis Mulkey or to see the clip, uh, it's not that that easy to find, to be frank. But it uh, it's a story that we told starting with what you think happens at the end of the championship game. That's the structure. And then we go back in time, ultimately, to reveal what does happen in the title game by telling you the story of Lewis Mulkey, his bond with his players, um, his devotion to the, the fire department, his calling as a firefighter, his... his uh, wife who he was married to for just one year, um, all of those things. And it's a story that's really, really stayed with me ever since we had the, the great opportunity to tell it. It's also the first time I had the opportunity to meet A.J. Green, who played for Lewis Mulkey in high school as a basketball player, while also being an all-world football player, which he's proven to be at Georgia and then, of course, in the NFL. Uh, Thanks so much for asking about Lewis Mulkey, the, the piece that we're, we love. How hard is it uh, to inject your opinion when doing tough interviews as the one you did with Urban Meyer? Uh, I, uh, let me see who asked that. That's Dylan. Um, Dylan, thanks for that question. In truth, I obviously everyone's going to take what they're what they will from an interview of that nature. A few years ago, um, we had the opportunity to sit down with Urban coming off the, the suspension that he was given by Ohio State for his handling of everything that went down uh, with Zach's and Courtney Smith, and I won't get into that whole backstory. But the job in that interview, Dylan, is not to opine. It is to ask questions, and you can be the arbiter of whether you think we did that. It's to ask questions that present in a fair and factual way an open-ended query, and then to hear what Urban Meyer, in this case, had to say about it and to follow up uh, based on what his answers were. Um, you know, Urban sat uh, in his home for 70 minutes straight to do that interview, and that was a very, very challenging interview for him to do. Uh, and I know that it's, it sparked a wide range of reaction as to how he answered the questions. Um, you know, I, I knew Urban Meyer for quite a while prior to that interview, and I know him now. I continue to text with him. Um, I wouldn't say the aftermath of that interview was easy for, for him, nor for our rapport or our relationship. 
but I have a great deal of respect for Urban Meyer and always will. That, that goes way beyond the dynamics of that interview. Um, and again, I thought he answered the questions his way with what he believes. And people are going to judge that in whatever way they will. It's not the job of the interviewer to opine. And I certainly tried not to do that. I'm not saying there aren't people who, people who probably think I did. But that was it would never be my goal or objective. Um, so how do you keep uh, this is from I'm sorry, is it Missy Jailu? How do you keep the interview flowing for guests that don't speak up or like to share? Uh, that's a terrific question. And I think there are a handful of ways that that you can do that with a subject who, while I wouldn't necessarily say is reluctant, but a subject who may not be that comfortable sharing or articulating or opening up to some degree. And sometimes it's by interviewing others before interviewing that subject. Why? Because that gives not only anecdote as fodder to say, you know, I spoke to your brother and he told me this. And that can lead as a very clear, specific on-ramp from what we would think is a source that's accurate and caring to try to spark some comfort in the subject. Number two is where you can say, you know, I spoke to your sister and this is something she said. Why do you think she said that? Now, the subject is not starting from zero. The subject isn't starting from some spot where he or she feels like, oh my goodness, I have to provide everything. The interviewer is providing a foundation from which the subject can respond. Those are a couple of ways at times. I also think a third and really simple way is to acknowledge right at the very beginning, of course, given the nature of an interview, not an accountability interview, but a feature interview, where you would say, I, I so much appreciate your willingness to sit down and share this part of your story with us. We're very appreciative of that. We have great respect for that. We're going to do everything we can to honor the trust you're placing in us by sharing that. And hopefully that puts a subject, if not at ease, it puts the subject in a different sort of headspace where she can say to herself, okay, maybe this is something that might not be as hard as I'm thinking it will be in my in my head or in my mind. <laughs> Where's Ernie? That's a great question. Ernie's in Georgia right now. I'm a very, very junior varsity stand-in for him. Not that it was ever intended to be that. Um, but uh, Ernie will be on the phone with me after this to, to coach me up about how I did. That was from Alec. Uh, how did you first get into sports journalism? Uh, and that was from Monteith. Um, I was a high school teacher and coach. That, those were my first jobs out of college. I went to the University of Pennsylvania in uh, Philadelphia. I was born in Brooklyn, grew up in Jersey, went to college in Philly. And uh, after that, I went and taught at a prep school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania which um, I loved, called Shadyside Academy. And uh, I coached and taught high school there. And after a few years, I went to the other end of the spectrum, if you will, 
in terms of high school educational experience. And I taught at a public high school in the South Bronx in New York City, which I loved and was a, a very challenging experience, but I think one that was really formative for me in that I didn't know maybe what I didn't know. I didn't understand how sheltered and blinkered my view and vision was, uh, despite the fact that I considered myself to, to know plenty about New York and plenty about you know, the different experiences that shape the city. And I was wrong. I, I didn't know at all. And I'm not saying I have some authoritative experience and all encompassing one now, but it helped me a great deal to teach at Morris High School, Colin Powell's alma mater in the South Bronx. After that, I went to journalism school at Columbia, which was a home run experience. They took a chance on a high school teacher, which I, I'm forever indebted to them for doing. Went to South Bend, Indiana as a one-man band in as a general news reporter. From there, I went to Portland, Oregon, general news reporter, California, general news reporter. Then I got a wonderful break at CNN SI. I saw someone asking a question about the difference between CNN and ESPN. Wow, that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother hour. Um, but I always loved sport and I inherited that passion from my older brother, Robert, who is not in sport. He works for the, the Federal Reserve um, and has been in different facets of banking his whole career, but he's the greatest, purest sports fan that I know. And he's really the reason that I'm in the business that I'm in. And from CNNSI, I went to ESPN with a great break and fortunate timing. As a reporter, what's your key to maintaining poise and keeping your voice inflection? And this is from uh, BMW32999. Well, BMW, I'm not certain that I succeeded that, to be honest. Uh, and I don't know that while you always want to be poised, um, I think you also want the inflection of your voice. This is now we're talking about events when you're chronicling events, either on the sideline or play by play or whatever your role is in an event broadcast. I think you want your voice to be reflective of what you're seeing and experiencing, not to get carried away, not to fail to chronicle and document what you're seeing in a clear way. But you want the emotion and the excitement of what's happening to be reflected in your voice, not at the price of articulation, and also, very importantly, not at the price of smothering what people are seeing. You know, it's, it's interesting. I remember uh, my friend Chris Fowler, who does such a tremendous job on college football and in tennis, when Andy Murray broke through in the Wimbledon final, and won for the first time as um, as a Brit, um, even though he's, he's from Scotland, as a Brit, somebody who's a, a part of the kingdom, for the first time in 77 years, in that tension-filled final game, he and John McEnroe and Patrick McEnroe said almost nothing. And they were universally praised for what we call in the business laying out, for saying so little. Because the greatest thing that can be achieved, I think, in a movie, in a piece of art, in theater, and in sport, is tension. Then you know it's working at its highest level. You're sitting by yourself in your kitchen, living room, watching on your phone, your iPad, and you feel tense from something happening, perhaps time zones and thousands of miles away. And not to get in the way of that 
to complement, frame, and amplify it, but not get in its way. And I think that's something I continue to try to work at and, and learn. How challenging was it to work through your emotions uh, of the man in the red bandana? Um, I, I've only, I mean, I've had the chance to tell uh, a lot of feature stories in my career, and I'm very fortunate for that. I've only, ultimately, only written a book um, about one of them, and that's based on that feature. Uh, the book is called The Red Bandana, and we were very lucky that, you know, the book had some success. It made the Times bestseller list. It's been taught now in a lot of different schools, high schools and colleges, as a book about 9-11, but also as a, as a character study of what any of us might do when faced with the ultimate decision of sacrifice. And that is, would we put the life of someone else, in Wells Crowther's case, the man in the red bandana, a stranger before our own safety and our own survival? And that's what Wells Crowther chose to do. It was, it's been an absolute honor to have the chance to chronicle Wells' story, but also to see his legacy grow, to see when the 9-11 Memorial and Museum was opened, that at that time, one of the key speakers was President Obama. And he mentioned only one person by name of the nearly 3,000 souls that died in those terrorist attacks, and it was Wells Crowther. And uh, to this day, I'm in touch with Wells' mom, Allison, one of the great forces of nature and one of the greatest people I'll ever know. Uh, it is a very emotional story, and my brother worked it in the South Tower of the World Trade Center until just a short time before the attacks happened. My sister was on maternity leave. She would have been working across the street at the World Financial Center. Um, we know people who are deeply touched. We know they're people who lost lives and lost people in their families in those terrorist attacks. And I don't think I put my emotion aside, nor could I. But um, it's certainly a story that will forever resonate with me. Thanks for asking about it. When an employer says you don't have enough experience, how should a candidate respond? That is from Julian Winters. Um, that is a great question, Julian. And I think there's a couple of different ways to respond. And one would be to ask a question perhaps in response. And that's what what is the employer, let's say the interviewer, what, what is your working definition right now of experience? And then based on what that answer might be, to offer that perhaps you do have experience, but in a different way. And in that way, you can apply what might not have been the expected answer into a way that suggests that there's great value and experience in what you've done, in what you've learned, in your curiosity, in your people skills, in the things that you already have learned to do and what you've learned from those things. Those are the experience. Because ultimately, right, I mean, it, it was, Oscar Wilde, who gave the, the great, great, brilliant quote, you know, experience is the name that people give to their mistakes. And that's always another good reply when someone says, you know what, you don't have enough experience, I think, to break the Wilde quote out if it doesn't seem too glib or, you know, too cheeky. 
I think that that'd be a good way, a good thing to to reply with as well. Did uh, teaching in the Bronx help you better understand the the uh, background of the athletes you now interview? Um, I, I think it, I touched on this before. I think it did not just of the athletes that I interview. I, I think it just, it broadened out my vision and my view. And I didn't necessarily realize uh, how limited that view was until I worked there. And that's why for me, uh, it was such a, a tremendous informative experience, something where, you know, I know we know that cliche, you know, you don't know what you don't know. I didn't know what I didn't know, I think, until I worked there. What is the most important piece of advice you have been given uh, in this industry? Uh, wow, I, I think I've been given some good advice, but I think uh, one of the the best pieces of advice this is now in, in the storytelling part of it that I that I was given was, um, and it was it was said to me with clarity and with some force. Um, that it's not about you. That if you're, if you're going to tell someone's story, realize, of course, your decisions, what you're going to include, what you're going to omit, how you're going to shape it, the language you're going to dress it in, all of those things, yeah, they're your decisions. But ultimately, the presentation is not about you. It's not about how many times you appear on camera or this phrase that you fell in love with because you think it has a lyrical turn or it's about honoring the trust someone has given to you and truthfully, fairly, accurately, to the best of your ability, telling that story. And if that's the case, and I still think I've struggled with this a lot, if that's the case, then really, it's about the story. It's a selfless pursuit. It's not about the, 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 the attention that the storyteller should receive. When you look out a window, right, it should be the view that you behold, not anything on the glass, not the lattice work, not, not the, the designs that the leaden panes may fall into. It should be about the view through the glass. Uh, what's your advice for how long a demo reel should be? Wow, is my is my advice going to be outdated? Um, so I know that for for a lot of people, that's a uh, it's a big big decision. That was Jack, our son, in the background. Jack, come by yeah. and give a wave here. Hold on, we got to get Jack in the mix here. Just stand over here. Just come right here. There he is. <laughs> Why are you the only person on it? <laughs> exactly. Um, so my thought here, and I don't, uh, listen, I know there's a million ways to, to make a demo reel. My thought here is to have one really good story. If you can put one strong story together and appear in it in some way that's organic, if you can, if not, you know, I understand doing an intro and doing a tag. So someone has a chance to see how you present, what you sound like, when on camera, when off, etc. I think one strong story is worth so many different stand-ups which are quick cut together, etc. I also think one really uh, clear way to try to stand apart is to write well. TV, largely speaking, is bereft of writing. 
And while I would never, it, it just is. And I think people who want to write are eager to do so and can do so with some facility and fluency are so far ahead of where others are that want to get involved in this. Uh, let me just see. How to maximize storytelling when you're a one-man band in local TV. Michael Kelly. Michael, great question. That's exactly how I started in South Bend. I was a one-man band, shot and edited and reported and wrote and narrated all the things that I presume you're doing and perhaps some other people who are watching right now um, do. I think part of that becomes, Michael, whether you can find time and then have the support to potentially try to do something that doesn't have to be turned in one day. Easy to say. And I say it as somebody who a million moons ago tried to do this as well. I worked hard, I, I did my daily features, I did the best that I could, but I also had an eye toward, is there something else I might be able to do where I can perhaps either on an off day or convincing the news director or news editor, can you get me out of the rotation for a day? So I might have the chance to do something special, something that I can put a little more time and craft into. And you know, that worked for me. Uh, I, I was fortunate to be given that opportunity. And when the piece turned out uh, to be positive in terms of meaning that it was a good piece, by the metric and judgment of the news director, that led to another opportunity to do that and another. That's one way to perhaps try to say, yeah, I'm gonna to continue to handle and earn my daily bread, but can I look for a story that perhaps gets a little more time in the crafting and the telling? How important, okay. How important, this is from AMAC15, uh, MSU. I don't know if that's uh, Michigan State, Mississippi State. Um, how important are using stats to you in any form of reporting you do? It's very important in prep. I don't know how important it ultimately is in reporting. And in particular, in let's say a live sideline reporting venue. Because at the end of the day, as much as there may be people who don't agree with this or don't want to hear this, what does the viewer want to hear? Does she want to hear me show off that I knew this great stat and I present this stat to a coach on the way into the locker room? No, uh, unless it absolutely illuminates uh, a, an answer that I'm seeking from the coach. Instead, what the viewer wants, she wants to hear what the coach has to say, not for me to show off what I may or may not know. And many times I think you, you do hear questions where, and I'm guilty of this too. Oh my gosh, I gotta prove what I know. I gotta prove what I know. Nobody really cares what you know. They care about what the coach knows, thought, why he decided what he decided, why she took this player out, why she called this time out, why he, whatever it may be. So, to, so statistics in that venue in vain, I think are less important. They are very important in prep. Uh, and they always will be, in particular here for like one example, the NFL draft that we're prepping for. Uh, now that the field has, hold on. Now that the field has become more digitally based, let me try to get that, although, although you're primarily a journalist, uh, do you feel the need 
to, to learn to how to edit videos and learn the production side of it all. Okay, that's from San Marino. San Marino, um, when I have had the chance to speak to, to classes and to speak to students, I oftentimes talk about what I think is a really undervalued word. I mean, really undervalued. And that word is and. Of course, I think as we move into a digital space, as many meaningful ands that you can put together, that's all the more attractive you will be. Not to say that you shouldn't try to hone your craft, whatever that, that central most important passion is, it doesn't have to be just one, but if it is, to pour yourself into. That doesn't mean you shouldn't develop as many other skills as you can. Really important to learn to shoot, to learn to edit, to learn to narrate properly, to learn to write, to learn to report, the, the, the first fundamental, all those things. As many skills as you can present to whatever venue where you might want to work, all of those things make you more attractive. That's A. B, all those skills inform the other. And that helps round you out and become better at each one of the skills individually when you put them all together. So absolutely learning to, uh, to put together as many of those skills as you can on the production side is crucial. Uh, do, you, do you tell who you're interviewing the questions before the interview starts? This is again uh, from Dylan. Uh, uh, this I, never Dylan is a huge word, but never. Uh, I, I try not to say that word, but typically no. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for it. Some people think that it's just inappropriate ethically to do it, and I see uh, I could see that argument. Other people think um, that it tries to, but that it undercuts the integrity of the interview itself. Um, I agree with that as well. But there's also a third reason why I would tell someone what the questions are exactly. Because what you really want is you want an authentic, true answer. Not one that's been shaped and prepared and scripted in the subject's mind. Because one, the authentic, real, raw, that one will come across that way and be a lot more captivating. And the other won't be. It will come across as stilted and scripted and of a lot less value or authenticity. What was it like interviewing Tiger Woods when he was at a low point in his life in 2010? That from Julian Winters. Um, Well, we were able, uh, Julian, to get the first interview with Tiger after the implosion in his personal life, and that was in the the early spring of 2010. And uh, there were conditions placed on the interview, um, not conditions about what we could ask. We we would never subscribe to those sorts of limitations. I think you can understand why, because then you're not going to be able to get what anybody wants anyway. But the conditions were still pretty onerous five minutes outside and standing. And if you think about, well, wow, that's so odd. Why standing? Well, one reason is so that if you started going way past five minutes, somebody could just walk off and end it. So not that that happened. Um, and I think outside feels perhaps less formal and less confessional 
than sitting down inside, etc. Um, so those may have been a couple of the reasons for those conditions. Um, I do know this, that, you know, there was a, uh, obviously a lot of attention that was going to be paid to the interview and to what Tiger had to say, but in this case, to what he was going to be asked. And uh, I went into it, it was with, you know, just a handful of questions. I ended up asking far more because I listened and tried to ask, uh, do my best to ask the appropriate follow-ups. I also know that a lot of people predicted if you ask the right questions, if you ask the hard questions, whatever that means, you know, he'll never speak to you again. And if you go soft on him, you'll never be respected again. So uh, I don't know that there was a great, great uh, latitude there or alleyway through to shining success. Um, and I'll let others decide whether the interview was successful or not. But I do know that, you know, to this day, um, I'm certainly in touch with Tiger and text him every now and then and that sort of thing and um, and did so just you know a week ago and uh, and I know that you know I, I I did the best I could to try to ask questions which were open-ended neutral and fair and I think he did he answered them in the way that he chose to do so but I, I'd like to think there was certainly some value in hearing from him then this is from Monteith. What was it like to go from reporting golf and football to getting to do the NBA playoffs? Um, it was great. <laughs> That's a real simple answer. I mean, I've, I've had the chance that in, on the event side of things to, to have uh, my roles increase organically and to join the coverage of more and different sports. And that's been terrific. And it's all, always interesting to see how when an athlete in one sport has seen your work in another sport and their curiosity about, hey, tell me about when you talk to a basketball player. First of all, everybody is fascinated by Tiger. And no, no group is more fascinated with Tiger than college football coaches. They love and are fascinated and compelled by Tiger Woods. It's almost universal, not completely, but almost universal. And I also think that a lot of NBA players are fascinated by golfers because a lot of them golf. And then there are golfers who are fascinated by NBA players and all those dynamics, I think. And taking what you learn, some of the fundamentals from one sport and trying to apply it to another, I think that also um, is helpful in trying to round out the way you approach each individual sport. Can you explain the process of how you approach a story, writing, interviews, etc.? And that's uh, Michael Kelly. Um, Michael, the uh, there is no one template to apply. I think the story itself often really shapes and informs the approach that you take. Um, but I do know that there are a couple of fundamentals. Number one is to do as much research as you can do heading into the story, if it has been at all reported before. And one of the reasons for that is because it not only do you want to have that to help shape the interview, but it also suggests a great a respect that you have for the subject sitting opposite you, that the subject can tell you've taken the time to learn about her or to learn about him. 
And that then leads to a better and more productive interview, not only in the quality of the questions, but in the attitude of the subject back toward you. That's number one. Number two, uh, in TV, in what we do, often sound is such a, it's just such a cornerstone. It's such a fundamental building block. The most important points along the storyline and story arc have to be illuminated most times by sound. And if the interviews are done well and they yield uh, powerful material, that's what we begin to build around. Third thing in terms of the approach is that clarity in TV or uh, on in the digital space, not in print, is such a crucial commandment. Because as soon as a viewer is confused, now he's no longer with you. The train continues to move down the track. The story continues to be told, but you've left the viewer a couple of stations back. So, well, wait a second. When she said, when he said that, when the narrator said this, clarity is so important because really that train is continuing to pass and it's a crucial commandment. Those are a couple of things um, I use in, in approaching telling a story. What's the most important element to creating an emotional bond with a viewer and character? That's from Connor. Um, I, think, I think that's two, two different questions, Con. The most important bond I think you can form with a subject or a character um, in your parlance, in the parlance of the question, is that, again, that's, that character, that subject needs to feel and believe in your curiosity and the earnestness of how you're listening and the earnestness and how you're accepting the trust that's being placed in you. And a lot of that, again, just comes from some of the simplest, most fundamental things we've learned from when we're in kindergarten. And that's how we learn what our curiosity is, how we follow up and in, in that respect, if a person feels like, wow, this person really is interested in my story, this person really does care about my experience, that's going to lead toward any bond that ultimately may form. And I'd like to think I still have bonds with a lot of the folks whose stories I've had the chance to tell. Nowhere near to the degree that I should, something I really need to work on, but I'd like to think I have bonds with certainly with some to this day. Um, in terms of the viewer, um, I've said this a, a bunch of times in different classes. I think there are three, there's a, a hundred ways to try to make a story successful, but here are three. Here are three ways, and this is how I'll define success. Success defined by this one simple metric, memorability. Is it memorable? When I close the computer screen, when I turn the phone off, when I walk away from the TV set, did I remember it? If I did, that is one metric of success, which is hard to beat. Here are three ways to make something memorable. I think in order of ascending difficulty. Number three, did it move me? Did it make me mad? Did it inspire me? Did it touch my heart? Did it sadden me? Did it, that I could simply sit look at a phone, look at a TV, look at a screen and be moved. 
that's a tremendous power in that. And that tends to be memorable, that connection moving somebody. Number two, did it surprise me? That is much harder. A lot of stories can seem to take a familiar shape and I can absolutely be guilty of falling into that rhythm and shape. Does the story surprise me in one detail, in one turning point, in one way that I thought it would turn out, but defied my expectation? And the number one way, the hardest way by far, I think is, did the story shift the lens of my understanding? In other words, did it remake my understanding of what I thought I knew? I thought this subject, this character was this person. And now I realize, no, he's that person. That or in, in a, a subject matter, I thought that this happened, this team lost, this tragedy occurred, this success was authored because of this. No, it was because of that. That's a really, really hard threshold to reach and I'm not certain I've ever really done it in my career. Move me, surprise me, change my view. Who is one of your favorite athletes you've met? Uh, and this is from uh, Lapierre West. Um, thanks, Lapierre, or Lapierre. I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong. Um, wow, there are so many. Uh, I've been so fortunate to be able to to spend time with and tell some personal stories and have some personal moments and more than that with both the obscure coaches and athletes and really famous ones. Um, I won't get into all the reasons why there are so many coaches and athletes who I really appreciate and like so much, uh, but I'll just, I'll say two. Um, one of them for sure is Rafael Nadal. And I won't get into all the exact reasons why, but um, Rafa has shown me uh, great personal kindness in, in my life with some of the things that have happened with me and my family. And it, there's just, there's so much about him to, that I try to learn from and so much about his example I try to follow. Uh, Rafa is just an extraordinary person and so is Rory. McElroy, uh, and absolutely uh, just extraordinarily authentic icon. And that's not easy to do. That's not, when you're under that degree of scrutiny, it's not that easy to have only really one version of who you are. And that's, I think, is one of Rory's great, great gifts. Um, anyone who would have the opportunity to spend a half hour having a you know having a drink with Rory or having a meal with him, I think would come across um, would leave you know wishing that they could do it again. Uh, he's just a he's terrific. I could name dozens and dozens and dozens more. Okay, last I know I said this already, guys. Last uh, last couple. Uh, what is one mistake that you've made in the industry, and how did you respond to it? Great question. Um. And this is from Zach, uh, Zach Zerdenik, 27. Um, 
you know, I, 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 I've made a lot of mistakes, um, but here's one. And it's one that involves someone who is of the moment, very, very much of the moment right now. And that's Tua. Uh, we had the opportunity to, I mean, I've had the opportunity to interview Tua many times at Alabama. And he's just an extraordinary young man, extraordinary soul, not only great athlete, but uh, there's so many winning aspects and dynamics to Tua Tungavailoa as a young man. And in telling the story of his family's journey uh, from Hawaii and ultimately coming to Alabama, uh, Tua shared one, one aspect of the way his father helped shape him. And, you know, in, in a three or four or five minute feature, it, it's hard to try to sum up somebody's family experience. We included uh, an answer from Tua, and then I presented that answer to his mom and his dad to talk about as well. And the reaction uh, was, I think, outsized and unfair to what Tua had shared um, about the way his dad disciplined him. And the hurt that that caused Tua and caused his parents I mean, I went and talked to Tua immediately afterward about some of the reaction as well as his mom and dad. And the reason I think that was a mistake is because if if it were to be included, it needed much fuller, greater context than I provided in telling that story. And that was a mistake. And it was a mistake that while I, I felt responsible for it's a mistake that I think hurt Tua and hurt his parents, um, in my view, in a very unfair way, in my view. And that was my failure and mistake for, again, not having done a good enough job in handling the context around which, uh, around uh, what they had shared. And like I say, that's a mistake for sure, in my view. Okay, last Michael Ke- uh, Michael Kelly, um, what are your thoughts on adding music to your stories? <laughs> what a loaded question! So, um, Michael, uh, at my fiftieth birthday party, we gave out shirts, and on the back of those T-shirts was a phrase, and the phrase said, "No piano or violins." That's what was written across the back. Um, and one of the reasons for that, of course, is because so many of the stories that I tell have a lot of piano and a lot of violin. Um, I'm blessed to work with the greatest feature producers, I think, in the entire business, not even close. Uh, they're awesome. And I could, I mean, I'd, I'd name one, but I'd have to name 25. They're incredible. Uh, however, music is such a subjective part of the production process. And many, many times, as those producers know, I don't tend to agree with the music that's been chosen because I would like it to be minimal as opposed to manipulative. And manipulative is in the ear of the beholder. Uh, I would just like things to be done in a far more minimal way. Not without music. I think music can be very powerful when it accentuates, but doesn't dictate. Big difference. And of course, that difference is completely subjective and how one hears it. So uh, I thank so much everyone who got on. I, again, I'm, I'm not on, um, I'm not on social media. Uh, so I, uh, 
uh, this is a, a new experience for me and I very much appreciate everybody who, who sent a question on. And uh, most importantly to everyone, please um, be safe and be healthy. And in this really challenging time, I'm coming to you from New Jersey. We're a state with great challenge. I'm in the county which has the, the largest number of cases within our state, which has the second highest number of cases. It's a very, very dangerous and dispiriting and dark time. And I certainly hope everyone who's watching and listening, I hope there was a little bit uh, to take away, but mostly what I'd like you to take away is please know from my family uh, how much we hope everyone is safe and is and is healthy and that everyone you care about and you love that you can hold them close and count the blessings of them being safe as well really appreciate your watching uh, and can't tell you how much i've enjoyed this um, even though it feels a bit self-indulgent thanks so much guys thank you for tuning into this episode of vj's game plan for more information on today's guest and breaking into the sports media industry, go to our website, www.ejsgameplan.com. Tune in every week to hear from more guests on their experience in the media industry. EJ's Game Plan is brought to you by Ernie Johnson Jr., the University of Georgia's new media institute and Grady Sports.